Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Hi, everyone. This is Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration podcast. I am very excited to share this episode with you. This is an interview with Dina Gandor, where she shares openly, vulnerably, and courageously about her experience as a Palestinian yogi. Dina is a Palestinian yoga teacher and body worker based in Dubai. She's a Jivamukti yoga certified teacher and has been sharing her passion for yoga for almost nine years through community classes and worldwide retreats. Dina is here on a mission to help women remember their strength, power, softness, and resilience. Dina believes that yoga is a practice of liberation and that liberation is about the elevation and healing of all beings. I invite you to listen to this episode with an open heart and a curious mind to let in the very real, authentic details of her personal story and to inspire you to continue the work of yoga. Hi, everyone, and welcome. And hi, Dina. Thanks so much for joining to share space with me on Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration podcast. I'm really looking forward to uh, spending this time with you and sharing your story with all of the fellow yogis and friends who are tuning in. So hi, Dina, and welcome. Hey, thank you so, so much. I'm just so grateful to be here. So why don't we start at the beginning of your yoga journey? Would you share everyone with everyone how long you've been practicing, how you found the practice, and what the practice has meant for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually came across yoga when I was 15. I'm 38 now. Um, I was passing by a friend's house and went up to her room to check in on her, and she was in a headstand. And I just thought it was the craziest, coolest, most magical thing ever. And I was like, what is she doing with her body? And how is she doing that? And how is she so still and so serene? And I was like, oh, what, what is that? What are you doing? And she said, oh, this is, it's called yoga. And I was like, okay, I think I heard Madonna talk about it at one point. And I was like, okay, this is super interesting. And she's like, yeah, I ordered this VHS off Amazon. Um, here, here it is. Like you can order it too. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that cool thing. Um, so I ordered this VHS on Amazon and there I was 15, uh, in my bedroom practicing to this Gaim video from, you know, 
2000 or something. Um, a really beautiful, strong, powerful practice that I still tell everybody to this day created very much like the foundation of my knowledge of the practice of the asanas of the alignment, like really gave me such a solid foundation. And I did that in the last kind of two years of my high school. And then it just kind of developed uh, from there. When I moved to the U S for university, I managed to start to take classes and actually see more of like what the yoga world had to offer. And eventually in 2015, I did my yoga teacher training in Jiva Mukti yoga, which I absolutely love um, and still feel very connected to and very passionate about. And I've been teaching that ever since almost nine years now. Yeah. Fantastic. I, 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 started Mysore style Ashtanga yoga in New York City at the old Jiva Mukti Center in Lafayette when they still had an, an Ashtanga Mysore style program. So that was actually my first exposure to the traditional Ashtanga method. And the whole Jiva Mukti uh, community, especially in New York around that time, and was very interwoven with the Ashtanga community around that time. So I think uh, I, I really respect how the Jiva Mukti founders, David Life and Sharon Gannon, have brought together the disciplines that really influenced their spiritual journey and have created a really amazing practice. So I think it's I think it's awesome that that's been a key component of your of your of your yoga journey and and it sounds like also of your teaching. Absolutely, yeah. And actually, I practiced Ashtanga for a good three or four years before I went and did my teacher training because the the teacher training were kind of required that you had a daily self-practice for at least three years before going. And I was like, oh, the best way to do this would be to practice Ashtanga, um, which I absolutely loved um, as well at the time. Um, But something that's quite special about Jiva Mukti is, is from a teaching perspective, from a practice perspective, I get, you know, you can really tap into whatever connects you whichever kind of path and school and philosophy, but with, in terms of like teaching, I just felt really excited to share more of these aspects of yoga that kind of weave into the classroom setting through the Jiva Mukti yoga mm-hmm. ideology, but very much, as you said, rooted in uh, tradition, which is mm-hmm. super important to me as well. So let's talk a little bit about that, that intersection of yoga on the mat and off the mat, because, you know, the, the, that's one of the core tenets that, that, of Jiva Mukti very much is taking some of those more moral and ethical principles and then applying them into different aspects of our, of our lives. So what, what elements of traditional yoga philosophy have been most inspiring for you and how, has, how have you been able to translate that? from your personal practice, your teaching into, um, into your life. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I keep coming back to is the, the chant that we do at the beginning of every practice, most of the time, Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu. And, you know, may all beings everywhere be happy and free. And then the co-founder Sharon Gannon likes to add this little extra bit that's in all of our kind of explanations of the chant and in the chant books and in the teachings that she offers, which is may the thoughts, words, and actions of my own life contribute in some way to that happiness and to that freedom for our all in the sense that it's one thing to sit and pray uh, that all beings are free from suffering, um, but that the only way that that's going to happen is when we are looking at our own thoughts, our own words, and our own actions, and the actions 
stem from the thoughts and what's happening inside within us. So for me, that was always really, really powerful. Um, This sense of karma, this karma yoga in in the sense of like action, this sense of um, being in the world uh, and learning from the world and then retreating and processing and integrating and then coming back out into the world. That's kind of also where the word Jiva Mukti comes from, Jivan Mukta, this idea of liberated living. They were very much um, believers in this idea that you could choose a path of, um, you know, uh, like going into a cave and um, retreating and turning inwards and kind of maybe be doing a practice of many years of silence. Um, or you could be in this world and you could still be liberated. You could still be liberated while living um, and being um part of what's happening in the world with all of its good and its bad. And then how are you contributing to that collective? So I think for me, that's also something that sticks with me when I think about the connection of living in the world and then living and breathing this practice and how those two kind of come together. And and for you, it's very personal and poignant in regards to the your your personal uh, family history and also the current situation that's unfolding. Would you share with everyone who's listening how that intersection plays out for you in regards to specifically your yoga practice, and then we can branch off into more um, more detail. But let's start with the with that specific root of the practice. Um. I guess, could you reframe that to be in terms of, yeah, the, the family part with the practice? Kind yes. Of- ju- ju- just that it's poignant for you, you know, like how, do, how, how do you feel when you step on the mat? What does that bring up for you? And how has the yoga community kind of responded to the unfolding of recent events? And, and has that brought up any, 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 any new revelations about, about your own past and your own family history? Hmm. Um, yeah, to be, to be really honest, I've noticed how challenging it is to practice at the moment, um, how challenging it is to even sit for five minutes and be still. Um, I'm someone that can easily sleep and can sleep anywhere and sleeps really well. And I've even struggled with that. So I'm definitely noticing how this direct personal ancestral impact is is also impacting uh, me on a day-to-day level and how it is absolutely challenging my ability to stay really grounded. And that's just like my complete honest answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also continues to fuel this fire of wanting to create a better world that, you know, surely this isn't our humanity. Like surely this isn't our shared consciousness. Surely this isn't what's happening. Um, in this world. And so there is this sense of needing to ground and needing to retreat, but then this equal uh, force of wanting to um, speak up and educate and um, most days really just scream (laughs) because sometimes it feels like so much um, of what people hear and what people see is very guided by Western media, which is very, um, kind of myopic in many senses and this uh feeling of just wanting to you know let everybody know like hey like there's this thing that's happening um you know our people are being um 
killed and murdered and um, there's innocent lives that are being taken and, you know, will anybody listen? But then at the same time, the yoga practice has really solidified my connection to God, connection to divine, however each person wants to view that. And I feel with without that sense of like faith in the interconnectedness of things, in the unfolding of things, in the divine play of things, I think I would be absolutely insane right now. I think I would have totally moved off the cliff of sanity. And so for me, that that piece has been really big. And that's something that at least I can come back to in my heart, if not in a particular ritual or practice. It's just being like there, I have to trust that there's something larger that's holding and containing everything that's happening in the world and trusting also that you know this divine energy is light but it's also darkness and it's also destruction we know that from yoga philosophy as well um and all the different archetypes of um deities and devies um being many different uh yeah energetic nuances and flavors and so for me that anchors me in this sense of like okay this is part of this is just all part of it and when i feel completely overwhelmed and helpless and voiceless and um yeah just feel like i'm unable to shift anything or move the needle even the tiniest bit i just come back to to that and that just helps me feel yeah a little bit more like myself. <laughs> How has the response been in your interaction with the yoga community? Do you feel people are listening to you and lifting up your voice and your community's voice or or do you feel some resistance around that? I would definitely say that most people in my community have been extremely, extremely supportive. Um, and the beautiful thing about the community is that they are now also able to uh, through their connection to me, to the practice, to yoga, um, are able to take that sense of curiosity and learning outside and say, okay, hey, like this is somebody that I learn from, that I connect to, uh, that I care about. Um, maybe there's there's something here that I should look into. You know, <laughs> I was talking to a friend the other day, um, and I was like, you know, I just I just don't know how I can. I can teach and be uplifting and um, inspire people right now. I feel sad. I feel low. I feel flat. I feel angry. Um, and I'm supposed to just kind of put my playlist on and like call some posts out. And um, I was like, you know, nobody likes a sad yoga teacher. Um, but then that's just what's alive. And I'm very privileged to still be able to be alive and to move through this world and to be in service. And so there is this very interesting kind of dissonance of existing in both worlds. But so most people have been really supportive. There are definitely some people that, um, you know, found it really difficult at the beginning when um, everything that unfolded on October 7th happened. Uh, for me, this history goes back almost 100 years. For some people, it goes back 58 days. And so it was very obvious for me and my connection to what's happening to call out for the safety um, of my people. Um, 
But I also know that there are some people that felt threatened by that, felt angry by that, uh, felt like, you know, I was taking sides and I'm always like, I'm a human being first and I'm a, I'm a yogi and a spiritual being second, because that's something I'm striving towards, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was very honest about that at the beginning that, uh, no, I'm, I'm activated and I, and I'm feeling what's happening and this isn't the first time and it's happened many times. And I've heard it over the dinner table and the breakfast table and the lunch table and my grandparents and my parents. And so for me to be like, peace for all, like, no, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) I hope so. I would love to get to that place where I can stay anchored in love and in openness, but it's a practice and Mm -hmm. I'm getting there. But Mm -hmm. um, so thankfully, mostly, mostly supportive. Um, And I think it's, you know, you attract the people that are on your wavelength. And so for now, it feels like the people joining in with me are the people that are um, on that wavelength. And thankfully because of social media i feel like it's most of the world which then also makes all of us feel less mm-hmm. alone mm. would you share a little about your about your family history because you said you've had these conversations for um you know for your entire life stretching back to almost 100 years over you know dinner table breakfast table so would you would you share a little bit about kind of where like your origin story and um, your grandparents' story so that everybody can really understand the context that you're coming into this with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my parents are both Palestinian. My grandparents are Palestinian uh, and I'm Palestinian as well. Um, my grandparents lived there in the early 1900s and um, on my dad's side, they lived up in the north in a, a t- um, town called Yaffa. And then in 1948, part of the Nekba, or what we call the catastrophe, were forcibly removed along with 750,000 Palestinians at the time to flee the country for their safety because there was a war. And so my grand mother who was pregnant at the time my grandfather literally like hopped on a truck there were these like people just had trucks and they were just filling them up with whoever they could and uh were like figure out where you want to go a lot of palestinians were pushed out into what are now the palestinian territories so a lot of people were pushed out into gaza a lot of people were pushed into the west bank and then a lot of people also fled and have become what's now that the palestinian diaspora Um, but they were they were part of the people that had to flee in 1948 my mother's family uh come from the west bank so she was able to continue to live there and go to university and then she left after university but my father's family had to leave and they decided to kind of cross over into Jordan, one of the neighboring countries. A lot of people crossed over into Syria, into Lebanon um, and became refugees. And actually a lot of the people living in Gaza are refugees from 1948 um, who still live in refugee camps and who have had, have had children and children but are still considered refugees um, that were not originally from there. So even the people, original people of Gaza had like an influx of people from other parts uh, of Palestine. So that's so that's our story and it's been a story of um, 
yeah, a people that have lived there for thousands and thousands of years. Um, my dad always talked about how, you know, my grandfather would say, you know, we all lived peacefully. The, the Palestinians were Arabs and the Arabs were Jews. They were Muslims and they were Christians. And we're a Christian family. My grandfather's neighbor was Jewish and it was just normal. It was the part of the world where there was a mix of these religions because of um, the land and the, and, and the beautiful sites that are there. So it was a very harmonious um, place to be because they were all united under this banner of being Palestinian. Because of where it is, it was it was occupied and uh, colonized by many, many different empires over a long period of time. And so what happened in after World War II, uh, especially as a lot of Jews were being um, exiled from many different countries and persecuted in many different countries, they felt like they needed to find a solution for them. And there was a rising Zionist movement that also very much facilitated that. And they decided it would be Palestine and kind of used this um, phrase, you know, a land without a people, because they didn't think anybody was there, but that there were, there, there was a lot of people there from, from these different religions. Um, so ended up having um, this, you know, formation of the state of Israel and sadly, even though under UN international law, every refugee has a right to return to their country, Palestinians haven't been able to return back. A lot of the homes, including my grandparents, have been taken by Israelis. Um, a lot of people moved in. You know, I hear these stories about, you know, Jewish settlers, which many of them, you know, aren't Arabs. They came from different parts of Europe. So this was a very new place for them as well. But I, I hear these stories from friends and from family and cousins and relatives about how, you know, they just moved into these houses as is. Like there's furniture and there's photographs and, you know, because a lot of people thought they would just go for like a week or two. Once things settle down, they would be able to come back and just come back into their homes. And, you know, to this day, we haven't been able to return. They've been quite, um, yeah, militant in their occupation rule about not having Arab Palestinians coming back and living on the land because they want to make sure it's you know a Jewish state, pre uh, predominantly Jewish in their numbers, um, and that and that they feel the safest and protected that way. So yeah, I'm curious to understand this current state of of all of the the Palestinian refugees. Um, because it sounds like they, that that is its own crisis, um, irrespective of what's happening um, in recent events. That this is this is itself a humanitarian crisis that pre-existed, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 recent events that have unfolded. Um, so, just for people who are who are tuning in who might not be uh, familiar with this, the refugees, Palestinian refugees who are in Lebanon. Are they granted Lebanese citizenship? Are they allowed to work or are they just kind of in a permanent limbo state in Lebanon? And same thing in Syria and in Jordan and, mm -hmm. and, and, and really anywhere else. And then also the, the, the Palestinian refugees within Gaza. Can they leave Gaza or, or not? Can people in the West Bank leave? I, I think people don't understand yeah, and I think that's that's such a good point because I also I'm so immersed in it that sometimes I forget to yeah to kind of state the the obvious for us um, but very important um, 
for everybody to understand. But yeah, in terms of your first question, every country received the Palestinians differently. Some, uh, so for example, my parents decided to go into Jordan. I don't know exactly why. I think that's just the place they thought was closest or easiest, or maybe they had distant relatives or something. And so very Fortunately for us, Jordan accepted the Palestinian refugees. And actually, my grandfather worked for the Palestinian Land Department when they were part of the British mandate. And actually, I was told that the, one of the British officers went to my grandfather and kind of gave him a heads up. He was like, look, there's some really bad stuff that's about to happen. Um, there's going to be a lot of, um, yeah, this kind of military uh resistance that's going to come in and, and try to take over. And he he kind of gave him a heads up to leave before everything sort of happened. So my grandfather kind of packed up all of his books of all of the land deeds of the people um, that he worked with that had registered in the Palestinian government at the time and took everything and went to Jordan. And Jordan was very uh, open and receptive to the refugees. And my grandfather created a whole department within the government of Jordan called the land department of Palestine. And so anybody could come to my grandfather and find their title deed to their land. And through that confirmed that they're a Palestinian refugee and Jordan gave them citizenship. So, so I'm a Jordanian citizen as a result. In places um, like Syria and Lebanon, I'm not as familiar, but my understanding is that they're much more under a refugee stat status. Um, that there, there is definitely not as much um, synergy and equality uh, that, um, you know, a lot of the refugees also in Palestine and in these places are continuing to live in this bubble because they're in refugee schools and they're in, you know, refugee food stamps and trying to get out of that system is very, very difficult. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I think I was I was reading about this and uh, about the about the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and Syria, and it seemed to indicate that they don't have path to citizenship and that they don't have uh, legal rights to work. Uh, there are something and I might be wrong on this number, but I think in Lebanon, there are 26 professions that Palestinian refugees are banned from working in. And it's sort of like all the professions where you could have upward mobility, you know, doctor, lawyer. Is anything to do with um, medical or teachers, or maybe not teachers, but because they have to have teachers within the refugee areas. But it's it's just you know reading about it, it's quite astounding. So there's um, there's this phrase that people might not be that, that that people are getting familiar with with the with the description of Gaza as an open air prison. Um, and so what it, what what exactly does that what does that mean for people? Because from you know, some people may look and say, well, they all have phones and Internet. How are they in prison? You know, so but it seems like they can't like would you go into that a bit and, and describe for people kind of what that what that means in terms of you know people who are living their lives and, and really not able to leave this very small area already having been refugees? Yeah, definitely. I'll, and I'll try to yeah do this to my best ability. And um, there'll definitely be some things I'm probably not as in tune to. But um yeah, Gaza's been under a blockade since 2005, I believe. So there were, Israel had started to build settlements. And this is some something that 
um, we always come back to is this idea that, you know, the land was divided by the UN into a Jewish state, an, an Arab state. And since 1948, there have been systemic continuation of the building of settlements. And that um, kind of uh, started to move into Gaza as well. And with kind of the rise of Hamas, um, Israel retreated and then because they considered them to be a terrorist organization, they created this blockade. And that means that they are closed by land and by sea. And Israel also controls the borders all over Palestine, even in the West Bank. They control um, entry and exit into the West Bank, control entry and exit into Gaza. But for Gaza specifically, it's been completely locked. There hasn't been, um, I think I read somewhere that in each year, there's only anywhere between like 12 and 40 permits allowed for entry and exit into Gaza. So they're completely locked in. And, um, you know, half of them are refugees. Uh, a lot of the kind of original people that were living in Gaza were in the south. A lot of the people that are refugees are living in kind of built up camps in the north. And that's why when everything started happening, it was extremely devastating because they hit the north first and that was the kind of the poorest people that were you know in these UN schools in these UN hospitals on these UN food stamps um but Israel because of this kind of collective punishment of like well you uh happened to elect this government uh which was a really long time ago in 2007 and there hasn't been a, a re-election since but they've had this collective punishment of like well you know, we're just going to close you all in. Uh, they regulate their fuel, they regulate their electricity, their medical aid, any kind of aid coming in. Um, they uh, regulate the seas, as I said, so people can't even, you know, leave by sea. Um, even the fishing uh, industry is regulated. Um they even uh, regulate their calorie intake. I don't know the specifics of this, but I understand that that's one of their kind of concepts as well. So there's a lot of pressure that's purposely created to kind of probably in their minds to create a breakdown in their um, ideology. But actually, in fact, a lot of people are just people and they're uh, trying to just get by and live and live their life. And so the fact that they've pushed, you know, 1.1 million people down into the South when it's already an extremely small landmass and there's no way to get out. They've bombed the airport. Um, and now, you know, obviously bombed schools and hospitals. And um, so it's just a really, really difficult, uh, it's a difficult situation. That's why it's been called, yeah, open air prison. Norman Finkelstein calls it an open air concentration camp. Um, and what's happening now uh, is very much a very apparent, uh, intentional, um, yeah, mass killing of a people, you know, almost 15,200 15, people as of yesterday I saw, uh, with nowhere for them to go. Um, they do also control their internet, so sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't. One of the really cool things that happened um, over this period of time is that now there's um, sort of 
international eSIM companies where you uh, can buy data from uh, a country, a company based in the UK or something, and you can just download a code onto your phone and use it. So one of the ways that people have been donating to the people of Gaza is by buying these SIMs and sending a code to a company and the company then disperses the codes to yeah, people. So people can stay truly connected and even let their family members know that they're still alive. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that Israel communicates with them um, is sometimes by kind of like I've I've seen in the West Bank, uh, they'll do like a big kind of speakerphone announcement to people. But in Gaza, they've actually dropped papers and letters from the sky. And so the letters literally fall on the floor and people pick them up. And it's like you have 24 hours to evacuate the north and move to the south. Uh, and like, so yeah, you can even just understand like people looking up to the sky, like for the next instruction of like what to do. And it's just, yeah, really hard to, to digest, um, to digest that. Yeah. How do people make the distinction between Hamas and the Palestinian people? Like how, how do people looking in say, you know, how do we save the Palestinian people? And maybe, maybe, maybe there are people who say, you know, Hamas is a terrorist organization and I support freeing the Palestinian people. How, do, how does someone navigate that? I think it's, I think it's really important that people remember that first and foremost, a, a land is made of, of people. And then on the side happens to be certain political factions and their governments. The same thing with any kind of country, you know, is like m- people are just people. They are musicians and they're artists and they're bakers and they're fishermen and they're just trying to get by and they've already be give- been given, um, you know, the short end of the stick. And it's very much, yeah, just getting by day to day and trying to make the best of what's what they have. Um, but, but then there are these kind of political factions and it's important for people to understand that there will always be people that support one type of political party and there will always be people that support another and that the diversity within the population is very much there and not to lose sight of that not to lose sight of the humanness of of the people and the fact that you know they haven't had an election in Gaza since 2007 you know um but actually Hamas was indirectly funded by Israel at the time because they were trying to mm-hmm. uh, counterbalance the Palestinian Authority. And so in the West Bank, where there are also settlements where settlers are um, given military assistance to um, raid people's homes in the middle of the night, to burn their farms, to burn the olive trees, to take land, to move into their houses, um, is is also there. And that's Hamas doesn't exist there. That's the Palestinian Authority. That's the government body that Israel recognizes and communicates with. Um, and then there's everybody in between, like all the people in the diaspora that voted for, for neither government, who um, don't have a right to return, who just want to see the land of their of their family and their grandparents and their ancestors treated with the utmost respect. And at the moment, it just feels like mm-hmm. building everything on top of ruins and skeletons and desecrating something that has been there for thousands of years and um, that for many of us is considered 
so 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 sacred um mm-hmm. even in the holy land you know it should just be it should just be so 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 sacred so yeah mm-hmm. In the teachings of the Gita, there's this moment, you know, where Arjuna comes in and says, you know, first he starts off saying, look, I don't want to do this. I don't want to fight. And then essentially the teaching of the Gita unfolds with Krishna saying, therefore fight for -hmm. all these reasons, therefore fight. This is the good fight. And it seems like, you know, there are a lot of yoga people that essentially say, I'm a pacifist. I would never fight. And I was talking about this, uh, um, the situation with uh, some friends and um, almost everybody seemed to say that we don't really know how we would feel if someone came and tried to occupy our homes. And, you know, you don't really know until you're in that position yourself. It's like, oh, I, I, I only want peace. I only want peace. I only want peace. But then someone's standing at your door with a gun and do like, do you fight the good fight in that moment? And what is the good fight? And so I feel that the, that the, that the conversations unfolding regarding kind of the nuanced approach to what is the good fight. And I, 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 no matter how much conflict there is in the world, and maybe I'm naive about this, I genuinely don't believe that human beings are malicious and evil. I think on some level, what even when we commit acts that are evil, that objectively harm in the world, there's something in us that thinks we're fighting the good fight. Maybe we're deluding mm-hmm. ourselves in that moment. You know, uh, may, we're, in retrospect, we can clearly see like the people have committed horrendous acts throughout the history of human civilization. They thought they were fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. this, there's this, I, I, there's this question. I think of is resistance the good fight? You know, is Palestinian res- resistance right now the good fight? Um, and is like what would Arjuna do in this situation? Mm-hmm. You know, and so yeah. how do you apply and how do you take that teaching for yourself? And how do you see that kind of playing out in the in the community? Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do think it comes to a point where the resistance arises as a result of the conditions that people are put under. Sometimes that resistance is peaceful in the case of Gandhi. Sometimes that resistance is not. And actually, a lot of the founding kind of members of Hamas were actually orphans from parents that were murdered and bombed as a result of the Israeli occupation. So there's a tie to the this desire within them to to write what they feel has been wronged. And of course, it's it all comes down to ideology. Each ideology can can prove in their own way that they're fighting the right fight. But then we have to step completely out of that and look at the entire look at the history, look at the context, uh, dig down deep into our humanity. And while nobody is at the root evil, we can, we have to make a judgment call for ourselves based on an embodied feeling of, of an unknowing of what is morally and ethically right and wrong and understand that there are, there are definitely good fights and that some are justified. And that's something that Dr. Gabor Mate said, you know, he said what happened on the 7th is not justified, but it's explainable in a sense. Like he's kind of like, it's, it's understandable that when you put enough pressure on a group of people, when you um, continuously dehumanize them, when you humiliate them, when you keep taking things away from them, when you put their children in prison, um, there will be a reaction 
and Palestinians and officials and governments and entities in the world and the international community have tried for for so many years to create um, change through peaceful resistance. Um, and if you read the Hundred Years War in Palestine, there's all these different accounts of when people have tried to do that. They've marched peacefully. They've gone to government. They've tried to instill international laws. And there are international laws that Israel um, continues to, to break. But at some point, you know, if the, if the international community hasn't stepped in to support any of those um, proposals or um, resistances that have been done in a peaceful way, then there's a group of people that just feel like if, you know, what else do we have to lose? Like, this is the end, you know? Um, so, yeah. So I think, I think there, for us, we feel um, not that extremism and terrorism of any kind is justified, but that at, at what cost do we have to continue to witness the elimination of a group of people uh, by a government who calls us human animals, by a government who says that there's no innocent children, uh, by a government who is already uh, building settlements in Gaza before the war is even over, um, by a government who is arming a group of, uh, you know, young adults as little, as little as the age of 17, arming civilians, arming settlers with guns. Um, it just feels like there is there is a side of them that is quite ruthless and quite um, racist and quite dogmatic. And I think that, you know, they've been funded by the U.S. every year, almost four billion dollars a year. And because of that support, they've been able to garner international support and recognition as well. And I think part of our struggle is trying to share our story and trying to rehumanize us to like remind people that you know not we're not all muslims are terrorists you know not all arabs are muslims you know there's christians and actually the christian community in gaza is almost completely uh demolished there's only a few christians living now because they were already a small community and most of them have died so i think I think that's kind of the mission for us is is to get up on that same platform that Israel has had because of their plight and because of their history, which is also extremely sad uh, and devastating, but that we can equally have a story and we can equally have a plight and we can equally be worthy of international of international support. Um, and I think something about Arjuna's journey is that he, you know, he hears the messages and he kind of takes a step back and he allows that to be, you know, filtered through his body and in his connection to, to divine, to Krishna. And then he sets out and goes forth and makes his decision. And that's something I think is so unique uh, and beautiful about the yoga practice is that we have this ability to learn and to take in the information and it's up to us to move it through our body, to feel it through our whole system, and then to take action from that place. And I think unfortunately at the moment, a lot of people are just operating very much from their mind and from their trauma and from mm -hmm. politics and from, you know, what they 
here on social media based on their echo chamber uh, instead of saying okay wait a minute you know like my my duty my dharma is to uh understand is to learn is to be curious is to have um a motivation for inquiry and then to really allow it to to filter through me uh in my whole body which is what's also beautiful about the physical practice and we're not just stuck in the mind um which is why it's also so beautiful to see so many uh, Zionists who have visited Palestine, who have have come out of there, you know, saying what an atrocity it is to have this occupation still ongoing. Because once you feel it in your body and there is that knowing of like, OK, something's not right here. You know, it's not right that Palestinians in the West Bank have to drive on separate roads and it can take them three hours longer than Israelis. Israeli car plates can drive on specific roads, um, Palestinian car plates on other roads. The Palestinians have to go through checkpoints sometimes just to get to another family's house. There's this separation wall that they kind of built through villages. And so even just to visit family members to get uh, to a hospital for treatment or even to get to work, a lot of Palestinians are hired as kind of cheap labor for construction or for farming or whatever. So even just to get to work, have to wake up at four in the morning and stand at these checkpoints um, for hours and hours and hours, which I feel, you know, we very much feel as part of this, you know, idea of breaking, really breaking down their morality, their their um hope their um human like humanity their um integrity uh and everything that that yeah kind of comes with that so i think yeah be curious and then take action from there <laughs> i like this idea of being curious investigating learning and sitting with and then figuring out what action is right for us you know, because it is social media uh, definitely increases the reactivity of our emotional cycles and sometimes doesn't actually lead to curiosity. It leads to more extremism with the, as you mentioned, the echo chambers that are created. So for, for people who are tuning in, who want to act, I would love everyone to follow your, your, um, your request to be curious, to educate, and then to sit with what action is right, you know? Um, whether that's, and, and there, and there, there are so many people who are, um, activists that have listed a whole detail of, of things that can be done, whether it's, whether it's posting something or sharing to your community or whether it's writing to your representatives or whether it's just investigating, learning and having conversations with people that are in your family, because everyone is a you know citizen within your, within your community. So then there are, there are people that just don't, no. And some people have just the, the people who have the privilege of just not paying attention, just having that conversation with them. It's having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. And she just said, I really have no idea what's going on. I just can't even understand who are the bad guys and who are the good guys. And it's just, I just can't. And I said, well, you know, actually I think you can like, it's, it, this is an age old kind of conflict that's going on, but, but it, you know, it'll take, it won't take too much time. I started speaking with her about it. And I feel somehow that we forget that, that it's in real life, that the process work of acting happens. And sometimes just posting something like a hashtag on social media that, that may actually have limited results. Whereas, you know, one conversation that you have with someone, even just one person out there who wasn't aware of what was happening and you, 
expanded their mind. And it's not necessarily like you have to take this side. Just like, here's this information. Here's a situation that's happening. And you know, where they take that, that's up to them. So I think um, one of the one of the other uh, the things that I think that I wanted to um, kind of ask you about is what you see as a potential solution, because there are, there are a lot of conversations about um, you know what what's the problem and 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 at this I mean we've had sort of like world's best diplomats on this and there's been very little um, support and progress. What, what do you see as, as a potential solution? Like long-term, if you could just dream it, you know, and, 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 and say, okay, if I could, if I could heal the wounds and create, create a solution, you know, what's that? And then what do you see as like a viable next step for the actuality of like, what is a next step that could actually be done? Yeah, that's a really, really beautiful question. I think witnessing what's happening now and how the international community is sometimes in support of the war and um, some just silent. It's sometimes hard to envision that, but I love this opportunity to just go there and hope for it. Um, I think for a long period of time, there was a sense of like, well, Israel's so new you know, maybe we'll just get back what we had. And then now there's the sense of, no, they're, you know, they're there in their estate and, you know, they have people and we don't want to do the same thing all over again. Okay. So let's have um, two states, which is what the UN tried to do. So I think the first step really is to end the occupation and ideally to stick to what the UN had uh, put in place in 1967, which were these borders and which would state like the capital for each of those countries. Um, so for me, it's it's this that sense of the future and that sense of hope can only come from an Israeli government that is um, open to ending this military occupation. That's open to you know letting go of these checkpoints to allow people to move freely, even into their into their country. Um, to allow people to move freely within their own country, to allow people to move freely within the world, um, and to discontinue the building of illegal settlements, um, and when possible, to return people into their homes. Some of those homes were destroyed and settlements were built on top, but you know this, this idea of discontinuing their expansion, because then we're just being pushed out completely and there's nowhere for us to go. And for some people they're like, Oh, well, you can just go to Egypt. And, um, that's a very kind of misguided, uh, colonial understanding that all Arabs are just happy to like live with each other when we're all culturally different. We have, you know, that's so easy to just go to Egypt. There's nobody being able to go to Egypt. There's only that one crossing that's, that's open for dual passport holders and very limited, limited capacity. And it's not like the door is open to go and move to Egypt. I think that that's just not a viable solution. Yeah, absolutely. And to to think that, oh, well, you know, they're Arabs, like they can just live in an Ar- another Arab country where, where it's no, like these Palestinians want to be in their homes. It's so mm-hmm. simple. And that's why even when, when you were saying, you know, it's, it's a complex history, it is, but also I feel like the, the, 
people in this international community in support of this war want us to believe it's complicated. It's not. There are people living there who have lived there for thousands of years, who have cultivated the land, who have cultivated the farms, who have cultivated their culture and their art and their history and their science and um, everything in between that, that just want the right to exist and the right to be there and to feel to feel safe being there. So I think really- I, I, I want to just, just jump in there and clarify something because I feel that when people say, um, it, when people kind of um, hear this idea of, well, there's people that have been living there for thousands of years. I want to go back and reference what you said at the beginning of this conversation in regards to Palestinians. So the idea of Palestinians being not only Muslims. So when we're talking about the indigenous population, this includes the Jewish people that were living there. As you said, this includes Christian people that were living there. And it, and it predates the, those two religions. So you're talking not about Muslims when you say Palestinians. And I think that's important because a lot of people hear thousands of years of people living there and they're like, no, 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 no. Like the Muslim religion is younger than that. And then you're saying, well, those are Muslim Palestinians. And then before that, there were Jewish Palestinians and Christian Palestinians. So this is an important, I think, culturally, um, note for people to make that when we're that when that that because I think there is this conflation of Palestinians and Muslim and so if we can unpack that and actually say when 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 someone who is Palestinian says the Palestinians have been living there for thousands of years that we're referring to multiple different religions mm -hmm. that have inhabited that place and uh, that that place in the world and 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 to make that distinction between the the Jewish people who are indigenous of that area versus the, the, you know, the European Jewish people who were um, coming over post, um, post-World War II for numerous reasons. And there, you know, and then there, there, again, as we mentioned, there's just, this is, um, you know, it's an absolutely horrible situation it goes beyond words that happens to the Jewish people in the Holocaust during World War II. There's really nothing, there's really no words that can express that horror and terror. And at the same time, we can't just we have to go in and be like, okay, so we have Jewish people that were that are actually Palestinian, and then we have Jewish people who are from your European of European descent, and then we have you know Palestinian people who are, were Christian, and Palestinian people who maybe were non from non Judeo Christian, and that and so then so then we then they start to understand. Wait a minute, it's more than just this two dimensional. You. So there is complexity to dive into and an understanding to kind of um, to kind of breach. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I do think that's kind of one of the areas that has been misinformed is this idea that, you know, Palestinians equal Muslims. And then because of the rise of Islamophobia, there's then there becomes extra and added connotations around that. Like, what kind of people are these? And like, are these people like we would support that we should care for should we care for these mothers and these children and you know if you go too deep into social media you'll see that there are some people that don't because of this ideology of uh, how they relate religion to the to the culture of people when actually like you said the culture is extremely extremely diverse they even look completely different there are some palestinians with like red hair and blue eyes and there's some with like brown hair and brown eyes and it's just a very rich diverse history and their religion was um 
you know, came from a result of the many different people that decided to rule the eras. When it was the Romans, it was Christianity. Uh, then it was the Ottomans. It was Islam. Before that, it was like Babylonian. Maybe it was pagan, you know. So it was just the people take on whatever influence is coming through in those hundreds of years of each kind of group of people um, and, and develop and evolve from there. But they were all there. They were all living there wasn't like an, there was of course like some movement of people as there always is in the world, but nothing kind of what, like what happened from 1912 to 1948, where, you know, these hundreds and thousands of, of Jews from around Europe, uh, came, came in, um, and settled in Palestine. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It also sounds to me like this is a post-colonial trauma that's still being played out because we have, you know, the, the different occupying, nations and different occupying powers that, you know, as you mentioned, date back to Babylonia, Roman occupation, the Ottoman Turk occupation, then the British and French colonial powers. And then now it's like, okay, so we're still dealing with kind of the remnants of post-colonialism dating all the way back to the Holy Roman Empire and the Babylonian Empire. And then they start to feel overwhelmed with ancient history. Like, oh, I think that was like in the Old Testament. I'm not sure. And then when we sit with it and realize, well, wow, um, I, and this may sound extremely overly optimistic, but when when these kind of collective long ancestral traumas come up to light, perhaps in the best possible light, if we collectively can heal, then um, you know, then every then every every loss ultimately can can mean something, you know, rather than it having being senseless. And I, I don't know if, if we will do it now, but I, I really hope that we'll take at least one step forward towards collective healing in this Holy land, you know, the intersection of three main, three, three, three main world religions intersect mm-hmm. in this Holy lands, you know, um, and, and, and also the source of so much division around these three main world religions. So if there is some opportunity for for healing, um, then 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 if we can somehow be inclusive and 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 do as Arjuna did to, to sit process and then fight the good fight within ourselves and show up and, and process, then I mean that's what I that's what I I want I hold space for and that's what I you know hope for and it may be overly naive and optimistic and maybe it takes like ten more generations and everybody needs to keep practicing in order to do that, but. Um, as you said, that's the that's the as you said, your faith in the divine and a bigger plan. I hold on to that too. Um, would you like to leave anyone with maybe like last um, last words of, of of what of what you'd like yoga practitioners to really really tune into to sit with and to and to take away from from everything that's unfolding now? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the the kind of big things are to continue to use the path and the practice and the teachings to stay open and to stay curious, um, to allow those teachings to bring up questions within yourself and to, to use the practice to create space so that, you know, like you said, with your friend, like keep having space, you know, space for questioning, space for new understanding, space for new frameworks, new perspectives, new paradigms. Um, because that's the that's really the only way we can go deeper into the practice. Um, otherwise, we're just our cups just overflowing and nothing's actually sticking and becoming embodied. Um, 
I would love for them to connect to uh, their humanness in addition to their spiritual energetic being that they also connect to the physical being that exists on this earth and that they share with other people. And like you said, our individual healing is going to contribute to the collective, but our fight for all freedom and all end of suffering is going to eliminate the suffering within ourselves. We're all interconnected. And that's exactly what yoga teaches that there, that everything is in this one beautiful conscious, you know, bubble. Um, and that we are, we are everything and everything is us. And so we can't sit back and separate ourselves from the, the bad things that are happening in the world. We have to look at them, face them, recognize that within each of every one of us is also a darkness is also the ability to potentially cause harm, hurt people, say bad things, do bad things. Um, and that until we give ourselves the permission and the space to recognize and see and observe and watch and, and shed light on these atrocities, um, there's the, the level of healing that we do on an individual basis just won't go, won't go as far. Um, yeah. And just to, yeah, remember, uh, to that every, um, story has history, has context, and, uh, just to stay open and curious to reading and to learning and, uh, growing in every way that they can. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you for your courage and your bravery and um, your vulnerability and sharing so much of, of, of your story and of your people's story. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so, so, so grateful to you for your for, for listening, for giving this a platform. And um, I just appreciate it so much. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method thanks so much for tuning in everyone may you be happy may you be peaceful may you be filled with love namaste